Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 238. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss the greatest game ever played. Are we sure I made it this week? I mean, it's kind of like when we do a film in which Idina Menzel is a star, where I'm here, and yes, that's about as far as it goes <laughs> for me. That's fair, I suppose, but it is a golf movie. You got this. It's a golf movie. I love golf. I've been playing golf my whole life. I watched this movie for the first time this week. Believe it or not, this is a movie because it was in and out of the theater so fast. Um, because it it was a box office bomb. It, it, despite the cast, it, it was and, and the talent behind it and Bill Paxton as a director it was a box office bomb. So it I didn't get to see it in theaters, and it's like one of those movies that was on the Golf Channel like once a month, and it was like ah I got to record that, and then I would forget. And then we got Disney Plus, and I was like I should sit and watch that. But because we dedicate so much time on Disney Plus to Monoreal. I just never had time to sit and watch it. The irony is that I'm 99.9% sure I did see it before we sat to review it this week. Um, One of my close friends had a giant crush on Shia LaBeouf and she wanted to see it in theaters. I don't remember a thing. I remember going with her, but I do not remember this movie. Interesting. What, the other very interesting fact is that in spite what a lot of people may think, we have had this episode penciled in for a couple of months. Yes, we knew it was the anniversary of Finding Nemo. We were like, okay, great. And then we wanted to do something in conjunction with the U.S. Open. So I remembered that this movie existed and I was like, all right, this is a good excuse to sit and watch it. Little did we know what was going to happen. I, I will tell you this. This is such big news that I knew about it before it was filtered through you. It's probably, in my lifetime, it is the biggest golf news of all time. This merger with the PGA and the DP World Tour and live. And, like, I'm not going to get into it because this isn't a sports program, but... For those that stayed true to the PGA Tour, and for the PGA Tour to sit there and call for a moral high ground and not taking the live money, only to turn around themselves and take the live money, because this is the thing with why a lot of people sympathized with the players who took the live money. Because ultimately, I think everybody knew that the PGA Tour monopolize the game of golf right the fact that they went and told these guys don't take the money so that they themselves could take the money and then said well if if this money's going to be invested in golf we should be on the right side of it just goes to show you that the pga tour wants nothing to do with anything more than money and controlling the sport there is your movie like Affleck oh, yeah. damon start writing oh yeah 
I'm sure it's well on its way. But yes, we did this in conjunction with the U.S. Open. Uh, that'll wrap up this Sunday. Um, where does this rank amongst other Disney sports films? How accurate is it? How is the pacing of the film? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. And there is a brand new Pirates line as of this week because that film is celebrating its... 20th, I that one I can't believe, 20th anniversary. Take all of Jackie's money. No, for real. The designs are spectacular. I'm so excited. Um, so listeners of our show can get a 20% discount with the code monoreal at checkout. Visit fierceboxdesignco.com to check out all of the collections. In Brookline, Massachusetts in 1913, Francis we met is an aspiring golfer, although his father does not support it as they are a working class family and his father believes in working to earn a wage while his mother supports his golf dream. So much so that when Francis was seven, she let him skip school and took him to meet his hero, Harry Varden. Uh, as the years go on, he gets a job at the country club across the street from their house, and while he caddies there, he gets his own set of clubs, practices, and wins the Massachusetts Schoolboy Championship. Uh, club member Mr. Hastings, as well as the caddy master, take notice of Francis and encourage him to play in the U.S. Amateur Tournament, but the cost to play is $50. Francis tells his father that if he does not win and qualify, he will quit golf and get a real job. On the 18th hole, with his father watching and distracting him, Francis misses a three-foot putt, doesn't qualify, and quits the game to work in a sports retail store. A few years later, Francis is invited by the president of the USGA, the United States Golf Association, to play in the U.S. Open, because he can as an amateur, which Francis eventually agrees to do, angering his father, who tells him that following the Open, that Francis must find a new place to live. As Francis prepares for the U.S. Open, as does Lord Northcliffe, who wishes to bring the win back to Britain with the help of Harry Varden and Ted Ray. Meanwhile, reigning champion John McDermott wants to keep the title in the U.S. Francis loses his caddy right before the tournament and hires 10-year-old Eddie Lowry to caddy for him, um, which becomes a joke to a lot of the people that are spectating. As play starts, Varden and Ray have a firm lead. However, after a storm during play levels the odds, Francis continues to fight back and tie them after four rounds to force an 18-hole playoff the following day. As they play on, Ray falls off while Francis keeps up with Varden. With his final putt on the 18th hole, Francis defeats Varden, becoming the first amateur to win the U.S. Open while making his father proud. All right. I have a few top-line notes here, a blanket statement, if you will, because I do want to give our listeners some context. You mentioned before you have played golf your whole life. I mean, you have worked at country clubs. Golf has always been your thing. Yep. And I could not be more opposite. I will play mini golf, but I cannot sit and watch a golf game. We should have mentioned this more in the show open before we got into the review. The only time that I actually sit in front of the television when golf is on is because we've have coined the phrase masters and mimosas. Yes. Sean watches the masters all weekend and I will sit with him 
and I will read a book so long as he pours me mimosas all day long. And that is the extent of me being into golf. So all that said, I am really trying to not look at this through the lens of someone who is bored to tears watching golf and really look at it through my producer lens. And my criticisms are of the film and I'm trying to separate it from golf. So you mentioned the pacing and, and that we're going to talk about that. We certainly are. That, that's going to be where most of my notes are coming from. Yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead. But it's when you do a film based on golf, you have to be very careful yes. with what you show and what you don't and yes. how you show it. That was, I think, their biggest challenge here was how do you make golf not only interesting but create tension? Frankly, and this is going to sound like an out-of-the-box comparison by virtue of one is very much a satire and the other is based on a true story. <laughs> but Happy Gilmore does that really well. Yeah, well... You can't use Caddyshack as a comparison because Caddyshack is a character film that happens to take place at a yeah. golf course. If you look at Caddyshack for what it is, a majority of that film takes place on the golf course but is not focused around them playing golf. And that's where Happy Gilmore does it best because they struck that balance with the comedy. Yeah. And, and that's what keeps people who are not interested in golf interested in that film. Here, it's a drama. It's a biopic. It's golf. They had the cards stacked against them. Um, I like the open with the flashback um, mm -hmm. with Varden as a boy. However, this is some one-on-one dialogue from the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank that's telling him and his family they have to leave because where their home is, they have this adorable little cottage, uh, you know, by the sea. It's, yeah. it's a picturesque location uh, in the Isle of Jersey. Um, and they're being kicked off their land because they're going to put a golf course there. Um, I wish that they would have leaned into this a little bit more and establish if this was common practice or not for people to be kicked off their land uh, because golf was becoming more and more popular. Um, because for people who don't know, you know, that posed a question off top. But at the same time, they do reinforce the idea of, you know, the, the Varden as a child asks, what's golf? And this mustache top hatted man tells him it's not for your kind. Yeah. These four gentlemen that look like they're there for a ritual sacrifice. They look like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. I thought that that's what they were supposed to be a metaphor for. Well, I think that that's what they become later on in the film. Yeah. And that's done really well when you see them flash back and you see their images. Mm, is it? Yes, it is. Mm. Okay. We'll put a pin in that for But remember, later. all of this is a true story because the first graphic you see is this is a true story. Right, but that's what I'm saying. I wish that they would have given a little bit more of that in the dialogue and instead of saying it's not for your kind. And I mean, that does set up a big theme of the movie about um, classism. Yeah. But 
I wish that they would have explained, you know, this is going to be happening all over the country now because golf is becoming so popular. That's all I needed. It didn't have to be, you know, a long scene. Just give me a little bit more of the history here. Well, they kind of get you into the intro, the opening credits very quickly. And the opening credits remind me of Newsies. Yes. It very much has a Newsies feel to it. I And I, I really like the way that it's done. It reminds me of like, paper dolls and I think that they just captured that era really well yeah I think so as well but you get out of that and very quickly into the introduction to Francis and his family to the point where upon first viewing you don't realize it's not the same kid yeah that was also very confusing because as well there is a little bit of an age gap right so you think this is the same kid just grown up a little bit and it's not exactly I it really does play that they were moved off the golf course and then they they went to the United States and the whole family just upped and moved yeah and then coincidentally bought a house right behind another golf course <laughs> yeah uh yeah it but you get introduced to them quickly and I think that they do a good job here of showing that they are a working class family. They're obviously struggling. They come from very little means. But I like that Francis starts to take this liking to golf by virtue of they do live right behind the golf course. His curiosity is peaked. And now he starts to learn and read more of Harry Varden. You know, remember, like, this was before Babe Ruth, right? Like, this was before sport was a really big thing. So It was 1913 well, the, when they played. When they played. So you got to figure this was 13 years prior, so it's 1900. I was going to say, it's before the, right before the turn of the century. Yes. And that was actually, yes, it was 1900 because that's when Varden won his U.S. Open. Okay. So it was 1900 where we see all of this happening. So that puts Francis at about seven, seven years here. Old. Okay. So I love that you see that Varden brings the U.S. Open Cup back to Britain. And it is like so pompous and arrogant where they're like, Pah, we've got their cup. You know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, 1776, be damned. We cut their golf trophy. <laughs> no, and this is where I was like, dang, if the golf doesn't lose me, this dialogue is going to. Yeah, it's the problem is, while I believe it's accurate, this is what the turnoff is when a lot of people who don't know golf think about golf. Right. This is what they think golf is. So, because the caricature of golf nowadays is the elitist based on what it was in the, 19, the early 1900s. So, when you see it on screen and it's thrown in your face, you think immediately, this is something I'm not going to be interested in. All of the characters are going to be dislikable, and this is everything about golf that is not relatable. See, they don't show you, you and your buddies shotgunning beers on the 11th hole in a in a golf outing listening to music on the course everything that people love about golf now Th this is what people think that golf is because this was the beginning this was the root of it all right so it's it's a tough watch in regards to getting you hooked without you rolling your eyes yes and i think that you needed to do a little bit more i mean, i like that they set up the tension that later plays out with McDermott, 
but I feel like you needed to spend a little bit a little bit more time with Francis before we jumped into this you know what I mean yes you just hit it that's not to say that they don't develop the character but I think that we needed to see more of his not his interest in golf because that plays well as far as the late night practices and him reading up on Varden and him wanting to meet Varden when he comes to town um but what they needed to do was show him learning because putting in the dark after everyone else in the house is asleep, it's just not enough. Like you need to show him absorbing the knowledge by virtue of living across from the golf course. You need to show him as a caddy learning the game. You need to see him working out the angles in his head because he's self-taught and we don't get any of that. We just get him being drawn to the game and people like his mother supporting him who I love I love from the jump that she was very supportive that you know she kind of let him have one more putt when she catches him playing at night and that she did take him to see Varden but other than that the next time we see Francis being supported is when he's gifted the putter by the gentleman who makes them for the country club yeah and it's like well, why? What is his relation to him? Why does he care? Why is he gifting this club? Like, why? We we don't know that everybody knows Francis loves golf, and that's the big piece that we're missing here, story wise. Yeah, I mean, I love the putting at night. I love the obsession with it. Yes, I love the fact that his mother takes him to go meet Varden because he wanted to skip school to go meet Varden because Varden happened to be in town is not something that happens often his father said no you have to go to school and his mother is the one that defiantly and you know you're thinking about 1900 it it's going to be very different that she is going to um kind of just thinking about what the social norm was at the time right that she's going to defy her husband to take him to meet a professional golfer I love the fact that it happens. Yeah. I love it for her because the other thing is you do need at least like it's a sports film, right? You need one parent that's going to back their dream, right? Yeah. And you need an ally for Francis. Correct. And I love that it's her. And I love that when she gets him to that meeting with Varden, the interaction with Varden is spectacular. Where he shows him the grip. And he helps after everybody's laughing. What it does is it further develops the admiration for Varden. It has a profound effect on him because now he knows how to swing the club properly. It also shows just how good Varden is that by simply rolling the hands over a little bit, he could fix the kid's swing. Right. And it's such a great setup for later on that now he's given Francis every tool that he needs to eventually beat him. The biggest miss is that at no point does it ever get called back to. Thank you. Okay. Yes. I'm waiting for this moment where Francis is fanboying with Varden and talks to him about it and Either Varden remembers it or he doesn't. But like I'm waiting for that moment that never happens. Right. Because I don't want to get too far ahead, but it would have been very important 
to know if he recognized that this was the same. Ca- I mean, you have to imagine if Varden's doing a tour like this, he's meeting a million kids, but it would have been so nice for them to call back and have Varden go, oh my gosh, I taught this kid and now he's he's threatening my game, he's threatening my title, he's threatening my pride. Especially, it would have been very strategic to put it before Varden starts playing dirty and and pulling out the trick shots. I mean, he's not playing dirty by doing that. If he can, if he can accomplish it, he didn't do anything illegal. No, but it just would have been nice to see like a motivation because this is something we're going to talk about later. Because Varden is sort of an enigma to me as a character, and I didn't feel like his motivations were very clear. So that yeah, would, would have been very helpful. Um, especially because there's also, there are a couple of glances between them. Like there is an exchange and you can't get a read if Varden is looking at him as a worthy opponent, looking at him as the kid who doesn't belong that he's going to take down, or if it is in fact that recognition. So I agree with you. I wish that they would have confirmed it, but all that aside, it is just a great scene between a boy meeting his hero and having a positive experience. You know, it, it could have gone completely the other way where Varden's a jerk to him. And then that's Francis's motivation to go beat him one day, you know, and yeah. and that would have been, you know, an interesting underdog story. Obviously, it's not what really happened. Um, but just as far as the scene playing out, it's nice that it was after his father being the the antagonist and all of the naysaying and don't get involved. It's nice that there was another push forward for Francis. The thing is, in regards to what you just said, when you get when he gives him the glance and you don't know if it's admonishment or admiration or acceptance, I think that it's the acceptance because Varden was the one that was kicked off of his land as a child so that a golf course could be built. I think that he recognizes that their lives are very much paralleled because everybody's talking about the amateur caddy. Yes. And what happens in the next scene is that Varden goes back to Britain, right? He's got the U.S. Open Cup. They're adding it to the trophy case, and they talk about club status. They talk about having an opening at the club. Harry Varden at this point is one of the best golfers in the world, one of the most well-renowned golfers in the world. He believes that he's about to be invited to join a prestigious golf club. You know, all of his hard work has paid off more than just on the professional level. Now he's finally going to get that acceptance. Come to find out, they never, and they still don't think that highly of him because they're not extending an invitation for him to join the club as a member. They're offering an opportunity for him to join the club as an employee. Right. And I think it's a very tough pill to swallow, us watching for Varden's sake. But in that moment, looking back on it as we're later in the film and they're extending those glances to each other, that's why I think that Varden is looking at him as an equal because they're cut from the same cloth. That wasn't something I realized until the second viewing was how many parallels there are because that idea is reinforced throughout the entire film. It's It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It doesn't matter how accomplished you are as a golfer. It matters who your father is and what family you were born into. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that, that that's the idea that the film reinforces. I'm not saying that that is 
what matters in life at all. Right. Um, what I really like here is how they do the time jump to an older Francis yes. because he is still playing after midnight. I thought that was really clever. I love that. Um, and the the really difficult scene as now he has won the schoolboy championship in Massachusetts, where he he has the opportunity to play in this amateur open, and they they bring him into the clubhouse with Hastings and with the caddy master, and they say, like, where is your home club? And he says, I don't have a home club. And they tell him, well then you you really can't play. And it's not until the end of the conversation where the one gentleman says, but if he, oh no, he, he asks, if I come up with the $50, though, I can still play. And they're like, well, yeah, if you can come up with the 50 bucks, because they don't think that he can, because they know that he's... That's unheard of. Right, exactly. You don't have money. It's such an awkward conversation to be a part of. And it's, it's hard to watch from Francis's perspective, because, you know... Yes, he's a caddy. There was an admonishment towards the caddies at the time. Uh, they were looked at as being lesser, even though they were the ones that basically called your game for you. Um, it, it's a very tough watch in that moment because even though he's self-taught, even though he's won a state championship, very similar to Varden, in spite of your accolades, you're not an equal. Right. But I do really like what it does for Francis's character because he doesn't just roll over and take it in the meeting because they tell him they use the words. Uh, you're not their kind. Yes. And, you know, as as only Shia can. Excuse me. What does that mean? It, it's like straight yes. out of holes. Um so I like that he you're, you're just missing the no 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 yeah, exactly. Um, I like that he does call them on it. He doesn't just sit back and take it, especially because the member that he was caddying for is the reason that he was put in this room. Right. He had faith in him, and I feel like other movies of this ilk or other, even other um, works of fiction. They'll set up the main character. A mentor will put them in the position where they feel like they're trying to do the right thing. And then our main character just gets ragged on and ripped apart and they leave with their tail between their legs. And it's like, well, you set them up and then you did nothing to help them when they really needed you. And they're being torn apart in this meeting. That's not how this scene plays at all. Um, the the club member doesn't really do anything. He doesn't really say anything. But I'm just glad that they didn't have Francis sit back and, and yes them. In fact, he does quit his job to show how serious he is about pursuing this. Because if a caddy can't play, um, his decision is I will no longer be a caddy. I want right. to play. Right. So and it's it's definitely a good character moment all around. And the whole time I'm waiting for Hastings to put up the money to get him in. Yes, but, that's and yeah, that doesn't yeah. happen either. Yeah. Uh, well, I think he's kind of ha he has to save face. He's already done enough by putting Francis in this situation, and clearly everyone is against him. So he's not going to rock the boat any more than he already has. Yeah, and threaten his own standing. But I thought exactly. it would be like a behind closed doors, like hush agreement. Like here's the money, go play. Yes, that doesn't happen either. Um, instead, what happens is you get the scene with the father and the father's, you know, and hey, not for anything. 
to this day, like I went out and I played golf the other day. I went and played Twilight walking rate because it was 13 bucks. And I said, that's a great deal. And I played a nice golf course down here. I'll look on golf now to see where can I get the best deal. And a lot of the times you can get 18 holes with a cart for 30 or 35 bucks. I'm going to pick that over the $50 course. It's 2023. Imagine what $50 was to play golf in 1913. Right. So like I understand. I mean, you could at the time you could buy a house for, you know, $1,000. So I understand his father's uh, hesitation with allowing him to go and play at the cost of 50 bucks. But I mean, where the movie turns itself on its head is you think it's, oh, here it comes. The, if I don't win, I'll quit dad. And, and you think, oh boy, he's going to win because you also know that he's going to become the first amateur to win the U S open. So it's going to be like, okay, dad gives him the money. He's going to win. Dad's still not going to be sold on the idea. Then he's got to win the U.S. So you don't see it coming that he's not going to win. But the most accurate thing about this, other than the fact that everybody in the tournament can't stand him because he's a caddy that's outplaying those with money, is that his father is looming in a way where it's like, I know you're going to screw this up. Almost like his father wanted him to and distracted him and he yipped on a three-footer. It is so wildly accurate that this would happen. Well, I mean, that's it, right? They're showing that more than half of it is the mental game. But I, I really love the conflict with his father because from the time Francis was seven, we've seen his dad saying, you know, you bring home the money for your family. And his dad is a salt of the earth, working class guy. He works very hard. Um, and you know, that that was very common of the time. If you weren't born into money, you had to work your butt off for it. And he's trying. It, it's a couple of things. He's trying not to set up his son up for disappointment. Right. He doesn't understand golf. I mean, aside from the fact that there's no interest in it. From from being sort of a have not and now having it thrown in your face when you live across the street from it. Yeah. He wants no part of this. This is very frivolous to him. So he's not going to recognize or understand his son's talent. Um, but I like that he wasn't flat out that that he didn't tell Francis no flat out. He still supported him enough to give him the money. Right. And instead of really lording lording it over his head, it was I'm going to give you the rope and you hang yourself with it, you know? Yeah. So I feel like the lesson would have been better learned on his own had Francis just been able to play his game and gotten in his own head and screwed it up. Then he could have gone back to his dad and said, you know what? OK, I'm done. I'm going to find another path. And, you know, later on, obviously, he's going to get called back in when you think he's out. Um, it just would have been an internal struggle here. I feel like it's almost not fair that his dad, his dad, I mean, he did this deliberately, right? He showed up to have this I told you so moment. He knew he was going to get in Francis's head. And it's like at that point, then why did you give him the 50 bucks? 
because it was a gamble. So you could have just allowed Francis to to see what he could do on his own, but you wanted him to fail. So all of this stops. That That's like an expensive lesson that you're paying for, you know? Correct. But it does set up better conflict throughout the rest of the course of the film, because once Francis does decide that he wants to pursue this, it also has to be about keeping it from his father. So movie wise, it all works, but it's just, Based on being that it's based on a true story, I just feel like that was an interesting parenting choice. Well, to his father, it was $50 well spent because to him, I just spent $50 for you to learn the life lesson that I've been trying to teach you and you refuse to listen to. I think that's how the father looks at this entire thing. Right. So to him, money well spent. And it also sets up more conflict with his mother because they've there are a handful of conversations back and forth between the two of them where he doesn't want to support Francis she does she's upset that he won't he's upset that she will and they do butt heads over it over the course of the film yes um before that game though there is another uh, kind of important scene because Francis meets his love interest Sarah they have a dance or, or a reception the night before um, so it's important to introduce this character, but at the same time, it is so heavy handed calling out that once again, Francis doesn't belong. It, it feels like, you know, the scene in Titanic where they take Jack to dinner as a thank you for saving Rose's life, um, because he doesn't have a suit and Molly Brown gives him a suit. And here Francis didn't have a suit. Well, he didn't have a tux. So he tries to play it off as like, oh, my, my luggage is gone and I had to you know get this other suit and you know now he's in his head like he doesn't belong well, and he was yeah. having a perfectly nice time up until that point yeah well and and in another comparable we'll go back to Caddyshack this is where Caddyshack did it a little bit better right because the whole time most of them do not look at the caddies as equals right because the caddies are just the caddies however at least when Danny wins the caddy scholarship Judge Smales says, what are you doing? I have a, I'm christening my new slew at the Yacht Club. What are you doing next weekend? And Danny says, I have no plans. And he goes, well, how would you like to come and mow my lawn? I'll pay you some extra money for college. It, but, and you think that's where it ends. But even after the conversation, he goes, and after you're done cutting the grass, why don't you come down to the Yacht Club and join us? You know what I'm saying? Like they still, they're willing to accept him, even though he's a caddy, because he has excelled at their game at their level. Now, again, Big difference between 1913 and 1980 when Caddyshack came out. And Caddyshack is going to be a more lighthearted film anyway. But to your point, it's so heavy handed here. And because at this point, it's like the fifth time yes. in the first 25 minutes that we've had to be reminded of this. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Caddyshack, they pepper it in a couple of times, but then at least allow Danny to kind of be a part of the click. Right. And Ty Webb buddies up with him like they do balance the relationship better there where they say the same thing. But it's more easily digestible because you're not tired of hearing it every time they bring it up. Right. And I think the part that's a little bit frustrating is that it's not constantly happening to Francis. I mean, it it has. It's happened twice. But we're feeling it as the audience more because we're also seeing Varden's parallel story and it's happening to him too. So that's where it feels like this is now the fifth scene where we're seeing 
you know, you don't belong. Um, so I feel like maybe they could have held it a little bit longer, but how are you going to do that without introducing this character? Francis now gets an invitation while he's at work. He's in the retail store, right? He's working in sporting goods. He gets the invitation from the president of the USGA to participate in the U.S. Open, even though I think this is two years later, I think was the timeline because now he's 20 years old and he was still a high school student when he played in that amateur Right. And when he meets Sarah, he says, oh, I'm taking a year off to to figure it out. So, yeah, I think that was the transition between high school and college. And either way, we saw it come out in one of my least favorite tropes of any sports movie, the tearing down of the bulletin board because you're giving up on your (laughs) dreams. I mean, honestly, I, I was watching that scene and I was like, well, how else can you really do a visual representation other than like throwing out his golf clubs, which would be really foolish. Yeah. There's not a lot of ways to go about this, but there are just so many films that do it. And I'm quite over it at this point. For sure. But I like the fact that his reputation precedes him. And what I like about the scene, what it is really is it's the visual because he's working in this shop surrounded by golf clubs at all times, yet he's not a salesperson. I think he's doing like janitorial work, like he's stocking and he's sweeping and he's cleaning the store. So there is sort of a splash of cold water where it's interesting that he gives up on the game and then finds himself in a job where he is surrounded by the game but but he's still not to a point where he's willing to be a salesperson. He's still working on like the lowest level that you can in the store. Well, is it that he's not willing to be a salesperson or is he not? I mean, I'd hardly call him not qualified, right? Because it makes all the sense in the world that he would end up in a store like this. He's been a caddy. He obviously knows the game. Like who better to sell clubs? But he's not selling them. Right. That's the thing, right? And that's, you know, it's reinforced by the two guys, his coworkers that are salesmen that are totally razzing him because they knew who he was. Correct. So it's that fall from grace. But I like the scene. I like the fact that they do recognize him for his past accomplishments. And it makes for a really interesting moment because up to this point, he, other than being taken to go see Harry Varden, he hasn't defied his father, right? Right. He's done everything that his father has asked him to do. So it's such an important moment. Like, it's weird to say for the character because he was a real person, but it is so, it's such a moment in the film for the character that we're seeing on screen that he has to have that moment of defiance where he says no, but then kind of comes to his senses and says, no, I have to do this. Well, that is the strength of an adaptation where, yes, you are taking from real life but you are making it a character moment and in this case they were able to do that successfully without having to take too much liberty and and change the story it just reinforces for the audience that yes he is doing what he promised he's keeping his word so that we are still rooting for him and it leads us to the favorite of any sports film a training montage of course you have to have them in every sports film 
And there he is. He's whacking the ball. It's, you know, I think at one point he's in the rain because you have to train in the rain at some point. Otherwise, are you really training? Um, it's, it's just like, it's a little bit of a pace killer because we know how good he is. We know that he's good enough that he gets invited to participate in the open. Like, yeah, you're going to go chip. You're going to go putt. You're going to go to whatever the 1913 version of a driving range was. But did we need the, we got to get to work? It, I don't think it was necessary. No, and this is the point that I was making before. It should have come earlier on so that we could see him develop the skill set. We know the interest was always there. We just needed to see why everyone else has believed in him so much to this point. Yeah. I'll give Shia LaBeouf credit. I wanted to ask you about that, what you thought about his swing. It, it's good. Yeah? It's a good golf swing. I, this is something that I've said in regards to a lot of films in the past. When it comes to golf, when it comes to baseball, when it came to hockey, although Miracle, not so much. And Mighty Ducks, you kind of get away with it because they're kids who are learning to play. But it is it is so obvious when you have actors in a film that have never played the sport before because it, they just, everything they do, every movement looks stiff. In Shia's case, and I don't know what his background was previously with the game of golf. Digging up holes, it's the same swing. Yeah, but he has such, it actually is a very good golf swing. Of, of some of the warts in this film when it comes to the play, the one thing that's consistently good is when you look at these players and their professionals, or at least playing at a professional level in you know, uh, Shia's case, they all look like they belong there. They don't look like an actor that's acting like a golfer. Right. No, and we have talked about that in sports films that we've reviewed before. Like, you called it out most recently in um, The Rookie. Yes. Where it's it's pretty well done, but you can kind of see, like, the actor just trained specifically for this role. It's not like a fluid motion where they've been doing it their whole life. But I think in Shia's case, whether he's a pro golfer or not, or whether he does it as a hobby or not, whether he's been doing it his whole life, he is the type of actor that will commit to a role and make sure something like that is perfect and feels natural so that he doesn't get called out for having just learned the skill. Speaking of golf swings, there's another one that I want to talk about because while Francis is doing his training, we cut back to England uh, and we are introduced to Ted Ray. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned before how golf sort of has this stigma attached to it that it is a very uppity up country club type of a game. And now it's become more about, you know, just bonding and hanging out with your friends and I I love that when we meet Ted Ray he is in the bar and everybody's just sort of cheering on this big swing and his strength and the ball I think it, it goes through a book or something uh all, all CGI not real I'm guessing there's like some sort of truth in that because this is based on a true story and maybe it was sort of like this Davy Crockett type legend about Ted Ray um, but I love this intro and I love that we do get to see the other fun side of golf here. Yeah, it's a, it's fun. Whether or not he actually did those things, I have no idea. I mean, to, to smack a golf ball through a thick book like that, 
would almost be unheard of. But I think, I don't think it's that he actually did it so much as they're trying to show that he's a heavy hitter. Right. Because that's, I mean, it, it's like shooting a bullet through a phone book is essentially what they, like, project on the screen when they have him hit this golf ball. I was also reading that Ted Ray was not actually as large as the actor who portrayed him. Yeah, I, I think that they kind of just went fantastical with it, for a lack of a better term. And I also think that, you know, once we get to the open, you kind of did need to have those opposing forces where you know Varden is going to be the most worthy opponent, but you have to come up with some other kind of threat. And I, I almost feel like they sort of leaned into the brain, the brains and brawn of it all yeah. as far as Varden and Ray. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good little beat. And then um, another scene that I really like is, you know, we've seen Francis's mother be his ally and she's been so supportive of golf and, I, I like that they included the scene where she takes him to the opera. And I think, you know, at face value, um, it's the reintroduction of Sarah. She's there with her family. Again, they reinforce the idea of they're up in the nosebleed seats, but Sarah's got the balcony and she's got, you know, a whole private area with her family. Right. And, and you know, I think that that's why, that's the main reason that they chose to include something like this, but I really like what it does as far as reminding us about the strong relationship that he's got with his mother. Um, I also think that at this point, you know, it, it shows a little bit how his father working so hard is starting to pay off that they can do these leisure activities and they can have a night out. Um, and I, I think this is still his mother's way of being supportive that she recognizes that he's, had to give up on his dream and she's trying to get him out, take his mind off of it. Um, but what I really like what it does is it's a big character moment for Francis because after he tells his mother, he finally voices um, that feeling that the, the singer had when they were performing. That's the feeling that I've wanted my whole life. And that's what we have not heard from him up to this point. We've seen him do the late night practice We've seen him try, but we've never got that. Why do you idol worship Varden so much? Why do you care so much? And I feel like it's coming a bit late, but better late than never. Yeah, you're right. It's a, I feel like they intentionally held this for this scene. I think they wrote this into the film so that he could have this moment, but... I mean, Francis is not a dislikable character up to this point, but I feel like it just took a little too long for us to get to this point with him. Because we need to be rooting for him and we need to believe him other than everyone else in his life has believed in him. We need the motivation and we finally get it. Yeah, and then we do get some more conflict with his father leading into the actual start of the open. Right. Because he comes home, he puts his bag on the, uh, on the porch and his dad's sitting out there and, and he says, do you think that you could hide this from me? And it's interesting how, you know, I, I praised the writing earlier on 
when Francis stood up for himself at the club meeting when they were trying to cast him out. But he doesn't do that again here. He doesn't say, you know, I never broke my promise. They sought me out and I'm miserable and I, I want to pursue that. Like we don't we don't get that fight again. And here's where you kind of need it, because now he's decided that against all odds, he's going to go for it. So it's like how if you can't stand up to your father, how are you going to stand up to Varden when it's time? Well, and it's difficult, too, because he's going to chase his dream to which his father's response is, well, find a new place to live. Well, see, that's where it's worth including a scene like this, because I would believe that that is true, that his father's kicking him out over this. In all likelihood. But I think doesn't it's. The delivery is a little low. Doesn't he say when this is over, find a new place? So it's like, you can play. I'm not going to get in your way. I'm not going to derail your focus. But after it's done, you're out. Correct. Which I I guess is kind of, at bare minimum, a little olive branch from his father that he still recognizes the focus and determination that this is going to take. So he's not going to distract him. I don't know. You, you've basically just been told that you're going to be homeless in the next five days. I think that that's that's a little distracting. It is. I mean, he's not going to be homeless. He has a job. That doesn't mean anything. But with that said, um, we get to the start of the open and you start to see how aggressive all of this truly is. Because we know that the Brits want to bring the U.S. Open championship back to Britain. McDermott wants to prove that the Brits don't rule the golf world and that it's the United States championship. It needs to stay there. It's their open. And now you have uh, Francis qualifies for the open. So he's in. And somebody steals his caddy because Francis didn't have the $20 to pay the caddy to be on the bag during the round. So, I mean, it, it in a moment where it seems like all of the odds are consistently stacked against him, it's just one more blow that he's getting ready to start this tournament the next day, and he has to start from scratch again with a caddy. But this is one of those cases where everything happens for a reason because now we get, spoiler alert, my favorite character in this movie, Eddie. I love Eddie. He's a lot of fun. I love the idea that a 10-year-old is caddying in the U.S. Open. My problem with him, and it's not with him, it's with the writing. He is one-liner city. It is just one corny, cheesy, tropey one-liner after another, after another, after another. It is the only thing that I will give credit on is that, yes, it's one-liners, but he's not the all-knowing quip machine. He's a little plucky, but not to a point where it gets annoying. And he does kind of always know what Francis needs to hear. I mean, like, yes, some of them are cliches that he's telling Francis, but I really do love when he always says to him, let's just play our game. 
In other words, block everything else out. And it's just another day of golf. And, and Eddie understands that and he knows what he needs to hear. Uh, but from the moment we meet Eddie, even before it's determined that he's going to caddy for him, I just love that Eddie's not going to take no for an answer because part of the condition of his brother caddying was that he was able to come along. Um, so I like that it sets it up that Eddie is going to be the calm in the storm for Francis throughout the open. Yeah, I think he needed it, right? I think he needed that presence around him because everybody else is literally against him. I mean, his own father isn't rooting for him. He's got his competitors that he's up against, and he knows in the back of his mind that there are people that are scoffing at him because he was the caddy. Well, President Taft is rooting for him. I I like President Taft in this film, and I like how Eddie... Yes. Eddie interacting with Taft is fantastic. That is one of my favorite parts of the film. Because it's like not a big deal to him. His big deal is that he gets to caddy the U.S. Open. He doesn't care. Yeah. The problem that I have for the most part is from this point moving forward. And there's two things that I think I don't want. I'm not giving my review away when I say this, but there are two things that happen that I think sort of fail this movie. The pace the CGI. Yep. Yeah. The, the the shortcomings in this case really shine sort of from here till the end of the movie. Yeah. You just hit it exactly on the head. And this is what I meant earlier when I said I really am trying to look at this through the film lens and not somebody who's just not interested in golf because it was hard enough to retain my interest at this point just by virtue of it being a golf movie compounded with I really didn't feel like the characters were developing all that well and now we're going to spend the last third of this film on the golf course I mean to their credit we sort of touched on this earlier you're making a film about golf it's not football it's not a team sport where you have different players different angles and uh, uh, infinite ways to shoot and edit you're very very limited to what you can do especially when you are trying to build tension here but the cgi was not the crutch that i would have leaned on in this situation but even some of the ways that it's shot, like there's a couple of shots that they do that are reminiscent of the opening credits that I thought were very cool where, you know, they'll have someone take a swing and then you see like a, almost like a, a ripple effect behind them of said swing. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. I thought stylistically it worked with the film, but the, the speed ramps were just so unmotivated. Like when they start a shot at normal f normal speed and then they'll just play it in, in, you know, like a time warp. Yeah. And then they'll slow it back down again. And I'm like, why are we, are we doing this? Because that's not the sort of, that doesn't lend to tension. That lends to action. And this is not an action film. So I thought that was kind of odd. And yeah, the the P 
POV shots take me right out of it. Like what they did from the POV of the golf ball or from Francis's POV, that all worked. But when you do these weird shots where they're standing to take their first swing and then they zero in on the hole, it just didn't work for me at all. Had they done that the entire time and that was consistent of like getting Fran- in Francis's head of how he's going to make the swing and we know that every time he zeroes in and focuses, he's going to make the shot, that would have worked, but it, it would have had to be like all or nothing. I think it works for Varden. Yeah. I, I think to see the mental block that he puts up, I think that it was important to put him in that POV. But, yeah, it's not something that you saw consistently through the film. What we see consistently are the shadow figures that continue to stalk Varden. I know that that wasn't really for you. I didn't mind that he kind of had these demons that were constantly chasing him. I didn't mind, but this is, again, where we needed more motivation from him. Are they... I mean, like, yes, obviously they are reinforcing his feelings of imposter syndrome because to him, he's always going to be the kid that got kicked off or kicked out of his home because they were building a golf course. But I think this is where him having so few lines, I like I can appreciate the quality of still waters run deep, but we just don't know what his motivation is. I couldn't tell, honestly, if this was supposed to be a metaphor for the end of his career and he was happy to let Francis have it because he does respect a good golf game so much and it was more of a passing of the torch, I couldn't tell if it was because he recognized him and he's like, well, you know what? My legacy is done, but this kid's worthy. Or I didn't know, I I, I was like, is is this real life? Did he die after this? Did he know he was sick or something? Yeah. So aside from being haunted by his past and being haunted by class, this is where it was just way, way too confusing. And it it completely threw you instead of serving to give us a better idea of what is going on in this character's mind. I think that we also spent way too much time in montage. Oh my God, yes. Because something that they did, and it sort of reminded me of when they would flash back to the media who is like sending telegrams or Morse code or whatever it is that they're doing back to their newspapers because they're covering the event, it reminded me of Iron Will. Yes. Like Iron Will did it really well with the updates through the media as to where they were in the race. I think that you have to show them playing golf. It's a movie about golf. But I think you need to show a couple of miraculous shots, a couple of shots where guys fall out of favor, fall off the board. You see that a little bit. And then get the reporters involved. I feel like you could have trimmed three or four minutes off. I couldn't agree with you more. And the other thing that's very jarring about these montages is they're they're showing the scoreboard, which is also CGI. If they had a proper board that we could have been cutting back and forth to, I think that that would have helped out a lot because 
you're right. To your point, the ch- this is where the sport itself is the challenge again because you don't have an announcer. It's not a football film. You can't cut back and forth to the to the media box where right. Although I don't always love that trope either because it's very see and say, and they are explaining what we should be seeing in the action. Um, so here they don't rely on see and say they do have the media explain what's going on, but I think it would have been really helpful instead of the montages to show what hole we're at. And you don't have to show all three of them tee off, but maybe show Varden's best shot on hole six raise on seven, somebody else is out on eight, you know, and, and just balance the pacing a little bit more. So instead of all these weird time warps where you're speeding up or relying on a montage, we could have gotten into the game a little bit more. Well, Ray is too busy knocking people out in restaurants. He should have done that more. I wanted to see him punch more people. There were there were probably at least three more characters where I was like, I hope they get what's coming to them. The Jersey Slug. Yes. I absolutely love the Jersey Slug when they're they're openly being insulted. And the thing is, it's like they're being insulted, yet they are two of the more respected golfers on the tour. So it just goes to show like how little respect even the two of them have had. Right. One of the few things this part of the film does do very successfully is pepper in the mom because she's had a front row seat to Francis her entire life and a front row seat to this golf course. So this poor woman is trying to go on about her day and not be completely obsessed with what's happening. And she's trying to focus on something else, but she is completely tuned in to the audio cues that are coming from across the way. And when people are cheering, she knows something big is going on. Um, So I love, I mean, I think that might've been a little forced that the family lives right off the 18th hole because now every time they're, they're making their last shots, she runs up and you know, the crowd parts and mom gets to see. Uh, But I do love how she's sprinkled in here. I like it. I like what it does for getting her there regularly. Um, I, you're right. It's it's a little far-fetched that it's always in that moment of glory that she can just run out there. But, I mean, I of all of the things that the film does that are kind of egregious, I feel like that's the least egregious of the bunch. Right. But I thought that... Um, Ray and Varden walking around like, all right, we're going to go to the playoff, but we got this thing in the bag for Francis to come from behind and sink the putt that he makes, you know, in bad weather against it all to force the playoff. I liked that for him. And I like the fact that we don't actually see him sink the putt. I like that. It's, it, it references what you're talking about. We see him, we see him make contact with the ball. We see the stroke. And then it cuts away to mom on the front porch and she hears everybody erupt. So we know what he's done. Exactly. I think for that much it works. And I like in that moment that Varden even says like, this isn't over yet. I like that they give him that moment where it's not that he's afraid. It's not that he's intimidated, but he is more aware of the threat of losing this tournament than anybody else because nobody is taking Francis seriously, even up to this point. 
Yes. This is the moment that I was waiting for from him the entire time where he finally speaks up and clearly spells out his motivation where he's playing for pride. Uh, It's about playing for you and who you are, not who your father is. And this is where it finally clicks that, oh, he sees himself in Francis and he respects Francis because up to this point, it was very confusing. Now we get to the playoff. But the drama starts before we even get to the first T. How dare these uppity-ups make Eddie cry like that? Well, because to them, they want the United States to take home the U.S. Open. So they don't want the 10-year-old on the bag. I'm not agreeing with them, but I can see where all of a sudden now they have this vested interest. This is the irony, right? You have now a vested interest in somebody who you didn't take seriously to begin with. You had no problem when he lost his caddy at the start of the tournament. Now you have to give him the best caddy that you can find. Exactly. I was going to say, this is so on brand. It tracks with everything that's happened so far. It's just one more reminder of we met's place in life and, and in their culture and how they look at him because they didn't care. They weren't going to help him out when he needed a caddy, to your point. But now that he's beaten every odd and all of this media attention is on him. Now they care what the optic is. Yeah. And you know that from his perspective, because he was a caddy, he obviously is going to look at this in a very different light, but I love that scene where he tells Eddie, it's you and me. They don't have a vote in this. And when he just turns to them and says, don't ever talk to my caddy again. Yes. It's it's one of the best moments in the film. It's also a great character moment for Eddie because there's that balance between he's a disappointed child and he's crying. But it means so much to him that he doesn't even care that they've offered him money to replace him. And he, he won't take it. Yeah. Let's talk about the actual playoff round. Another montage. But it has to be, right? Yeah. I'm mean, like, there's no way to do this without montaging. I think that they do a better job here tightening up certain things. I feel like for a time, it turns into Varden's movie more than it does Wimet's. This is what I've been talking about, though, with it being too little too late. I mean, we did get the one Varden moment where he says we're playing for pride, not who our families are. So we have established a more clear motivation for him. And I think it is actually a good shift because now he wants it. And this is what I had mentioned earlier where... um, It was confusing to me at first, but now... With his motivation clear, he does start to play. I mean, I said it was a dirty shot where he intentionally blocks Francis's ball. Um, I mean, if that's if that's the equivalent of like a hit in hockey and it's all fair, then great. But I do like the moment how Francis fires back with this amazing trick shot where he jumps Varden's ball and lands it, but it pops back out. Yeah, I mean, nowadays they would mark that ball. But I think things were obviously very different back Let's then. Let's pretend that I know nothing about golf. What does marking that ball mean? There's, you would have a ball mark on, either you, you would carry like a coin in your pocket or more times than not, there's a mark on the actual glove and it's held on by like a magnet. And you would literally put the mark behind where your ball sits 
and you would pick your ball up. So it's a physical placeholder. Oh, you said mark the ball. I'm thinking like you're going to draw. No, you would physically mark on the, the ball, ball. Got it. So that it did not interfere with somebody else's play. Okay. Um, I, I can't speak to the accuracy of as to whether or not that rule was in place prior to this or if they did this for dramatic effect. In any case, it worked because there are a few inaccuracies when it comes to the real story, but we'll kind of put a pin in that until we're sort of wrapping up the whole thing here. But you see that Wimet is now with Varden because Ray starts to drop off. Right. And just when you think Varden's out of it, he starts playing better, and he makes the joke that he should have started smoking four holes prior because he's smoking his pipe on the golf course. Uh, Very funny line. And, you know, in kind of typical fashion, now everybody's starting to follow, and here comes his mother, and here's Sarah. Now, Sarah's kind of been back and forth throughout the whole tournament, skipping school to get here, right? But we have to make sure that we show everybody as they're starting to really close in on the end of this tournament. Right. I am glad that Sarah comes back, though, because she has made her intentions clear. She gave him the pin for good luck. Um, well, she she gave it to Eddie to pass along. And Eddie didn't give it to him right away. So smart, though. I love that he held it until Francis needed that. Yeah. I love that he had that bullet in the chamber. No, that was all great. And it, and it speaks to Eddie's relationship with him, too. Yes. Um, but I do like that. Sarah has been paying attention and she clearly doesn't care about Francis's background and, and she's clearly got a thing for him. Um, her wardrobe, it is worth noting, is is one of my favorite things about this movie. I love every single outfit they have her in, especially this last one when she comes back. In the blue, right? Yes. So I thought that the costumes and the sets throughout were incredible yeah uh in terms of nailing the period piece i mean they knocked this film out of the park for sure yeah so we come down to the last hole because of course you do of course we do and varden looks like he's got the thing almost signed sealed and delivered until francis makes the miracle putt to win it all now, remind me, because honestly, the the th- three matches they've played up to this point are just jumbled together in a series of montages in my mind. He was six, stroke bu- six strokes behind and then came back to win it? Or was that the day before? That was um, the day before. It was, right? Okay. Because they had a three-way tie going into the start of the playoff. Yes, round. and then after Ray drops off, they were like within one stroke of each other. Yes. Okay, got it. And what I love about it, and you know, it's it's cheese, right? Everybody's going to lift them up on their shoulders. My favorite part about it, though, his father gives him the money. Now his father's supportive of him, right? That's not my favorite part of it. My favorite part about of this whole thing is that when they everybody's trying to hand him money and he's saying, I can't take it because yeah. he's an amateur. So he literally can't take it. So he's saying, hat, uh, money in the hat for Eddie mm-hmm. because... He knows that enough people are throwing money at him where he's going to be able to get that money to Eddie and more than make what Eddie turned down. Exactly. To help him on the bag for that round. Exactly. Yeah. Those two moments are what even even the dad is a little bit cliche, but I love that he finally has his father's respect. 
Um, and instead of just seeing his dad, I love the gesture that his dad is passing him money on something that he has always written off as as frivolous and, you know, not that his son was never going to amount to anything, but he just never saw it as a viable option to make a living. Um, but the Eddie moment is what really stops this from being a total cliche is that he's still putting Eddie first. He's still thinking of him before himself and, um, you know, just uh, enabling it, enabling everyone to make good on this for Eddie. Yeah. Do we want to talk about some of the uh, inaccuracies in the film before we move on to cast? Before we do, I just want to talk about that quick little beat with Varden at the very end. I like that they got that closure. Yes. And I wouldn't have, I still wish that we would have had some kind of acknowledgement that yes, you were the kid or, or you taught me how to swing when I was a kid, right. but not here at the end. I wish we would have gotten it earlier on in the film. I don't think it would have done anything putting it at the end to be like, well, you taught me to swing and now I beat you. But Unless Varden was the one that called it out after the fact, then it would have worked. Like if he yes. knew the whole time who he was. Correct. But had we met done it, it would, it would have served no purpose. Yeah. So for the most part, this film is actually quite accurate they they played with it a little bit in terms of the accuracy to over dramatize it but what they did was the bad weather they moved it up a day okay so that weather was not unfavorable in that round and spoiler alert we met one by six strokes it did not come down to a final putt okay that is the six stroke because i did read something about that yeah I mean, this is, again, where you have that challenge of it's a golf movie. If he's six strokes ahead, I mean, come on. If if we're at Yankee Stadium and they're up by that much, people start filtering out to beat the traffic. You don't stick around when you're up that far ahead. So I I totally get why they did that. And that's a liberty I don't mind them taking. It's certainly better than, you know, am I, am I to take away from this that the ladybug that they CGI'd onto Ray's ball was accurate. Right. Like we needed that. What was the point? Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, right? I, I understand why they would do it in this case. Frankly, like this is one of the more accurate historical depictions. You know, like I don't think anything that they've done is quite as accurate as Miracle. Rise was close. This is close. Cool Runnings takes some more liberties. And then Remember the Titans is basically a made-up film. You know what I'm saying? It, it, there's almost nothing about that film that's accurate. Um, and Invincible, that that's kind of an in-between... That's sort of an in-between Cool Runnings and uh, Remember the Titans. And which, The Rookie, I think, was pretty close. The Rookie was pretty close. So, I mean, but this this one is kind of towards the top of the list in terms of the accuracy. If you just take away the fact that he won by six strokes. Because I guess it's an interesting enough story, but not interesting enough to make it a landslide victory. No, this is one of those instances where I'm okay with them taking a little bit of creative liberty in service of story. All right. Are we ready to talk about our cast of characters? Yes. All right. Starting with Shia LaBeouf, who plays our hero in the film, Francis Wimette. 
he was really, really good in this film. Shia, I haven't thought about Shia LaBeouf in years, and now we sit here and, what, twice in the last month, we've talked about Shia LaBeouf on this show. Well, I think that's because after Transformers, he sort of, he sort of went off the rails a little bit, and he's done a lot of indie work since then. Um, you know, I, I think it's intentional that he's tried to separate himself from Hollywood, but it's such a shame because he is such a good actor in holes. He's great. And he carries the film and you kind of chalk it up to, he's good for a kid carrying this film. Right. This really shows where he's, he's got the chops. Um, as far as, you know, just looking very natural, very fluid golfing, um, toning down the no, 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 no. And, and just embodying that person, I, I thought he was really great in this. Yeah. Stephen Delane plays Harry Varden. I thought that he was very good in the film. I thought that the moments where they needed him to carry the drama, you know, that internal turmoil, every time he needed to be knocked down, whether it was being stalked by the four figures or being reminded that in spite of his achievements, he's still not going to be looked at as an equal. I thought that he did that very well. I would agree. As frustrating as it was that you couldn't get a read on this character, that's a compliment to the actor. It is. And a critique of the story. Stephen Marcus plays Ted Ray. He's good comic relief. I mean, like, I the way that they portrayed him in the film, like, yes, he takes the game very seriously, but he's really in there as... To br he kind of brings your lighthearted moments into the film. Yeah, because you couldn't leave all of that to Eddie to have the levity. So he's he's great comic relief. I wish he would have punched more people because Lord knows I wanted to during this film. Yeah, Peter Firth plays Lord Northcliffe. Um, I, I mean, if you were looking for a pompous, <laughs> arrogant mustachioed individual <laughs> uh he certainly did play the role very well but i do i do think that i while he was over the top i thought that for what for the story they were trying to tell i thought that this worked i agree i feel like the character is sort of an archetype but he gave it enough life where it it didn't completely fall flat Josh Flitter plays Eddie Lowry. He's a scene stealer. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing else to say about him. Not a scene stealer. He, he's just a straight movie stealer. Like, he is my favorite thing about this film. Peyton List plays Sarah, and I thought that she was... Uh, I, I, I did like her in the film. I thought that the character was interesting. I think that... She's an endearing character because until the point that he qualifies for the Open, she knows who he is and she still has this continued interest in him. Like, it would be very easy to sit there and say, well, of course she's rooting for him now. It looks like he could win the U.S. Open, albeit as an amateur. That's going to boost his stock a little bit and maybe he'll be respected and you don't want to call her a gold digger. You could have very easily painted it in that light, and they didn't at all. No, because she was in his corner the whole time. Not only was she able to look past his background and his class standing and like him for who he was, or who he is, I should say, she also wasn't afraid to call him on being who he is. Because 
you know, she'll ask it like, oh, you know, when, when she goes back to the shop that he's working at, like, oh, was this your plan to figure it out? You know, like she knows what he's capable of and it doesn't matter to her whether it brings money or not. She just wants him to reach his full potential. Elias Codius plays Arthur. We met. He's he sounds like the goalie from Slapshot. It's I, I understand that he's trying to be French Canadian. But how you make the money. It, it's so I, I mean, yes, I, I understand that that's how they speak, but it kind of sounded like somebody that was trying to be French Canadian. It sounded to me more like he was trying to be French Brooklyn or something. Um, this was a surprise for me, though, because I vaguely recognized him. And I'm not going to pretend that I knew this without the help of IM- IMDb. Uh, when I looked at who he was, I said to you, I was like, oh, my God, that's Casey from TMNT, as in Jose Canseco bat. Yeah, but, and he's actually from Montreal, so I guess he if there's one person that can pull off French-Canadian, I guess it's him. That's fine, and he does Brooklyn way better in Ninja Turtles. <laughs> I, I thought so. Marty McPhail plays Mary Wimette, uh, his mother, very supportive mother. Uh, in, in the scenes where you need somebody to be behind his corner 110%, it's her. It's nothing against the actress, but... It got a little stale with she just happens to be at the clothesline walking back in the house and, and then she's got to turn and look at the golf course. It it was a little too much. Oh, but I think that was intentional. I think she knew from living across from the course how to time these games so that she was there and she could be a part of what's going on without having to openly defy her husband. And then, you know. When things got really exciting, she was like, damn it, I'm going to go anyway and support my son. No, she was the rock. She was the heart and soul. I, I loved her. Final thoughts on the greatest game ever played. I'll go first. I, I don't have a ton of thoughts on it. I think that for a biopic, it's very good. I think that it's for the most part historically accurate without playing with too many details. I thought the cast was good. I thought that the sets the costumes were great uh i think the story is great i think it's a story that should have been told i i think that it was slow at times i think the cgi is unwatchable but you know disney um yeah but i i put it i would rank it in the top um, five i'd i'd maybe put it in the top five sports films we've discussed so far on this show I mean, I will give it kudos for being accurate. I will give it kudos for attempting to make a film about golf interesting, but I feel like there were just a million other ways that they could have gone about it. And certainly, least of all, I would not have relied on CGI nearly that much to try and tell this story. Um, It's good, not great. Uh, certainly not one of my favorites, something that I'm certainly not going to return to rewatch very often. But I think if you've not seen it, it's definitely worth checking out just really for to watch a good period piece. Um, Those were the best elements were the sets, the costumes, um, the dialogue and and just capturing that era and and this golf boom. Um, But otherwise, 
not my favorite sports movie by any stretch of the imagination. We want to know what you have to say about the greatest game ever played. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning. She helped us pick the right time of year to visit to make sure we don't have big lines, and she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice in making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World, and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. At the time of this recording, we are halfway to the holidays. So if you are thinking of coming to Walt Disney World to see some amazing holiday decorations, or if you're planning a trip for early 2024, now is the time to book. So you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L, E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's artwork and all of her services. It is online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N kismetdesigns.com I want to talk about a trailer and then I want to talk about being halfway through the holidays. Halfway to the holidays, not through the holidays. Oh, uh, yeah, close enough. Let's talk <laughs> about the Elio trailer. Yeah. This, um, this is inter- it's an interesting trailer because I didn't know anything about this going in. I don't think anyone did. I mean, they announced this, I believe, when they announced Elemental. Yes. And obviously Elemental's coming out very soon, so we've gotten trailers, we've gotten posters, but this one I feel like was on ice for a while. Um, first of all, original concept. I'm going to praise it. For that. Yes, it's Thank not a sequel. heavens. Oh, my Lord. It's not a sequel. It's not a remake. It's not, but I'm getting major Mars Needs Moms vibes. Yeah. And major Lilo and Stitch vibes as far as all of these different type of aliens. Like, they are... That, that was a big critique I had of Lilo and Stitch was that, you know... It, it doesn't it's not like Star Wars where you have like different species. Right. From different galaxies. And yes. Planets. That all work together and everyone looks different. And here they're doing the same thing that Lilo and Stitch did is that everybody, you know, like, are they different species? Are they from different places or is everybody just entirely unique? So it, to me, it was reminiscent of that. Um I, I think the setup is good. I think it's pretty funny that, you know, this kid goes to space and he's supposed to be our leader. And you can kind of see 
where they're going to draw the comedy from, but they're already flipping it on its head because he's going to represent Earth or a Earth in a trial, which is, that's interesting. My interest is peaked. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. It looks like it's going to be funny. Uh, the trailer had me laugh quite a few times. I think the animation looks good. I'm in. I'm in for something different, something unique, and something that's not another sequel. Yes. All right. Halfway to the holidays. Yes. Uh, we just got Very Merry Dates announced. Um, they are happening almost every other day. So that tells you yeah, where, where Disney's head is at, that they are... Upselling on a ticketed event and cutting people's times in the park shorter. And and I can guarantee you they've probably, even though they added more dates, honestly, this looks like the most they've ever had. Even though they've added more dates, they're probably not going to scale back on the amount of tickets that are sold per date. I, I doubt that they will, but as somebody that has gone to Very Merry a few times and now that you know, for the last year and a half, we're not only annual pass holders, but Disney Parks locals. Don't you kind of like the idea of having a, a few more parties a week and maybe spreading some of that crowd out? I like that more people who are vacationing will have the opportunity to go. And, you know, you don't have to adjust the dates of your vacation necessarily to accommodate getting to a Mickey's Very Merry, but Conversely, I also feel bad for people who are paying to be here and paying a lot because the prices are through the roof around Christmas time, to be honest. Um, I don't like that their day in the park is going to get cut short. So it's there's. Yeah, I'm seeing it from both sides. But I think regardless. Less tickets sold per night of Very Merry so that you can get to experience everything. Well, they're not going to do that. No, it's, it's because then why, why would they do? Why would they add dates if they were just going to limit the tickets? Well, speaking of additions, yes. there is one that I am very, very excited for. And I was like, how, how did we not think of this before? Um, Hollywood studios is going to do a Jollywood celebration. The name, the branding alone is brilliant. We have said it a million times. Hollywood Studios has the best Christmas decorations. So I yeah, am so excited that they got the memo and they're just going to lean into that. It's going to be like all of that old Hollywood glam. Um, they're going to have a whole bunch of special snacks and craft cocktails, which look absolutely amazing. Yeah, a lot, I think a lot of martinis. Um, they're going to have um, live music um in Commissary Row and by the tower in the courtyard, which is going to be so cool. And then, just when you think it can't get any better, um, Kermit and Miss Piggy are going to host a show, and I die. Is it going to be a stage presentation of the Muppet Christmas Carol? I, they didn't. I, I couldn't get a lot of information. on They're that. holding some because there's an there's another show. Uh, I think another sing along that they have not announced what it is yet. They're they're still holding some stuff back. Um, but I I don't care. It's about darn time the Muppets got something. I'm excited that we're that we're getting multiple Christmas events because I think that that's also that's going also to spread, spread people, people out. out. Mm-hmm. I'm in. I'm very excited. I'm not wishing for it to be December just yet, but I will certainly be excited to partake in 
these holiday offerings because sure. they do such a great job. We're interested in hearing what you have to say about Halfway to the Holidays or the Elio trailer. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on all of the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And for links to everything related to the show, it is going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.